Don't always say thank you. Donald K. Magic. Of course, it's okay to say thank you sometimes, but let's learn some more expressions. I really appreciate it. Donald K. Magic. This phrase is used to show a deeper level of gratitude and appreciation for something. You're a lifesaver. Donald K. Magic. This expression is often used when someone helped you in a situation where you really needed it. I can't thank you enough. Donald K. Magic. You can use this one to show extreme gratitude when someone has done something for you that is truly appreciated. I owe you one. Donald K. Magic. This phrase expresses that you're indebted to someone for a favor they have done for you. Alright, we're just gonna go. It is what it is. Alright, so... Uh, on that bombshell, welcome to a brand new episode of Lucky Paper Radio. I don't know when I started saying brand new, but I started saying it like I think a year ago and it just stuck and I don't know why. But anyway, my name is Andy and I'm here as always with my co-host, Anthony, permanently indebted to Donald K. Magic Maddox. Aren't we all? We, we are all we, indebted to Donald K. Magic. On Lucky Paper Radio, owe him for so much, for annotating old episodes, proofreading posters, pointing out mistakes on the website. <laughs> pointing out so many mistakes <laughs> on the website. Generally oh. being a huge help. Yeah, yeah. We've mentioned Donald K. Magic on the show before, and uh, just somebody that's really helped us out over the years. Such a good dude. And he's pretty good at magic, too. This week's episode is going to be a tournament report. We're going to go over an entire weekend of drafts at KubeCon, so... That was three main event drafts on Friday, three main event drafts on Saturday, and if you were lucky enough, you got to play in the top 64 and top eight matches on Sunday. But Anthony, no one cares about what you and I did at KubeCon. First of all, I was doing commentary half the time. I barely got any main event drafts in. What what was your overall record at KubeCon? Did you do anything notable? I did okay. I did way better than I did last year, where I think I won a match the entire weekend. Uh, I actually got got one trophy pin. I three-owed one draft, and I think I drafted some cool decks. Okay, but it doesn't sound like it was a fantastic performance. Okay, no, no, it was medium. I think literally in the middle. I think I ended at rank 200. You, so you did a regular... I did a regular You did a regular time. KubeCon? <laughs> that was my plan. Instead of uh, talking about one of our weekends, we have got the KubeCon champion here with us tonight on the call. We are joined by special guests all the way from St. Louis, Tim Myers, a.k.a. Donald K. Magic. Donald K. Magic won KubeCon! Hooray! <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me on. <laughs> it still, still feels weird to... Hear that said out loud. Yeah, I mean, it was such a. I'm getting, I'm getting used. It was to such it. a great performance. You uh, did really well in all your drafts all weekend, and then we got to see you on coverage in the top eight, win your last two matches. You, you didn't play anything else on coverage, but we do have all of your deck photos here that you have so carefully organized and your records. So we're just going to walk through all the cubes you drafted. I think this is a cool way for us to talk about a subsection of the cubes that were on offer at KubeCon. And most importantly, get the perspectives of a new and different voice in the show, and that is you, Tim. Yeah, it was great to have Dom Harvey on last weekend, but... Uh, but Dom lost. But Dom lost, so it's, it's great to actually have a real winner here. <laughs> yeah, get, get that scrub out of here. That scrub Harvey didn't win, so we, we're talking to the real champion tonight. So where do you want to get started, uh, Tim? Do you have any like overall thoughts about KubeCon? Should we dive into your like first draft? What do you wanna, where do you want to start? We can do a few overall thoughts. Um, overall, KubeCon is amazing. It was going to be amazing no matter how I did this weekend, because... Cube is fun. All these cubes are great. It was great to meet everybody, to see everybody. Coverage was fantastic. I just finished watching the last of the coverage that they have uploaded with the top 64 draft. I didn't watch them in order, as you might guess. I can't wait for them to upload the Watsi panel and for to upload the uh, the game show that I, I wanted to see both of those, but Too sadly there was also Cube on offer at the time, so. Too busy collecting those dubs to go to a panel. 
Right, right. Unlike Reed Duke, who couldn't, <laughs> who couldn't be bothered to win and went to the panel instead. And this is your second year at KubeCon, right? You were there last year as well. Yes, I was. Yeah, I mean, this, I think that really just uh, speaks to the, the tone of the event. I loved on coverage after you were being interviewed after your victory, and you were asked, they were asking, you know, well, what were you trying to, were you trying to get to the championship? Was this your goal? What did it feel like? And you're like, no, nah, I just came here to have a fun and do a lot of drafts. And it's interesting, I also got a chance to play with last year's champion, Caleb Durward, and he said exactly the same thing. I asked him, you know, this was the very first draft of the event. I said, are you going for the gold again? And he was like, I'm just here to have a great time and do a lot of drafts. And he did pretty well as well. But uh, yeah, I mean, that was really just the the vibe that I think you really uh, reflected. Yeah, to be honest, my Sunday didn't go as planned because the, the plan for Sunday was to miss top 64, get my cube back from the main event check-in, and then try to fire some side event drafts. But that, that didn't work out, so I guess ne- next year I can try to run that plan back. Too busy collecting dubs once again. Yeah, I, I think that uh, this year the event like more than doubled in size, and I think it didn't really experience any growing pains. I think it was actually even better organized than the first year. And I was really pleased to see that I think the the tone of the event has like refined to this like really nice balance of competitive and casual, right? We had everybody from competitive grinders there that were like yeah it's a competitive event i'm gonna play in all the main event drafts try and win the weekend because that's what i find fun about the game to people that were just like i'm here to have fun and if i play some cube great if i sit here and draw tokens all day that's also fine really accommodated i think a wide spectrum of different kinds of players which is a big testament to the event yeah and that was something that was echoed by both dom harvey and reed duke who were interviewed on coverage and they both called attention to that balance between the excitement of the competitive part of the main event where you can kind of be playing for something and have a goal but also the casual nature where people are just helping each other out here to have fun best of both worlds so let's um let's dive into your drafts here we've got your draft sitting in front of us but what was the first cube you drafted in the main event on friday morning so on friday morning when i was initially making my rankings the first cube i wanted to try to get was the reading rainbow cube so that was my number one pick and everything else after that was just kind of figuring it out by vibes. I had drafted the Reading Rainbow Cube once before in the open play area of last year's KubeCon, and I had a great time with that. It was very interesting. The The first time that I did that draft, I approached it like a typical gold-colored cube, I think. Um, so the Reading Rainbow Cube has a stipulation where you start the game with the Pillar of the Parents in play, which is a land that taps to add one mana of any color if you're casting a multicolored spell, not for any activated abilities or anything like that. Um, I kind of didn't lean into that the first time around. And I first picked, or not first picked, but highly picked a bunch of the thriving lands that are in there for fixing mm-hmm. and just tried to do five colors, splashing all of the big, splashy, expensive spells. Uh, that didn't work out the greatest. I had a lot of fun, but I ended up one, two in that draft. So I was excited to kind of run it back, um, approach it with more of uh, looking at that pillar of the parents and realizing you can be more, a little more, I guess, not aggressive necessarily. I didn't want to be aggressive, but a little more focused and constrained in the cards that you're taking instead of trying to do everything. So that's what I ended up doing in this draft. Um, I started with Kaya Ghost Assassin, which is a card that I've been very impressed with in other contexts. It's a very flexible card uh, can grind out a lot of card advantage in the slower environment i kind of made a i don't remember the other picks that set me in a direction but pretty early on i also picked up a siege rhino and once i picked up a siege rhino i had very clear direction that i wanted to just cast that 
as quickly as I possibly could. So I tried to pick up a lot of two mana plays that would help me ramp that. So on turn one, you have the Pillar of Parents in play. You can make your land drop. So you have two mana. If you use that two mana to play an Accelerant, and the next turn you make your next land drop, you'll have four mana to get a turn two Seed Rhino in play. And that was a dream that I lived in several of these matches. Much to your opponent's chagrin, I imagine. Yes, yes. Turn two Seed Rhino is pretty strong. Not a lot of decks are equipped to uh, handle that. From there, I also included a bunch of just kind of efficient beaters. There are still some of these splashier Haymaker spells like Doom Blast and Lavalanche that I picked up. Um, some grindier top end like the Bailoff Null that can rebuy uh, a bunch of creatures. So that that was that was kind of how I landed into this. It's, um, all pips that are each card only has one colored pip that is not green or black. So this is like the reading rainbow version of a green black deck. It can be kind of hard to piece together uh, the common thread when you're seeing all of these at once. Yeah, it's really tough. I'm honestly looking at it and I was like, this has got to be uh, a green red deck, right? Like, and I'm going through picking out like what doesn't match that theme. And it's close, but there are a couple things that stand out. I think the key is looking yeah. at the three color cards because you can right, tell yeah. they have to have that at least the two colors in common there. And yeah, this looks great. And you have a single fixing land, it looks like, one thriving grove. But uh, like you said, you can definitely draft a narrower. I mean, the idea of a of you being limited in what cards you can cast in that cube is uh, is all relative, right? But you were not looking at, you know, cards that didn't have green or black, which limits you a little bit in uh, in what those cards can possibly be. But you end up with what, yeah, plays like a two-color deck. The one cost is the uh, double spelling, right? It's hard sometimes to double spell, but when you're just playing a Siege Rhino on turn two, who needs to double spell? Just curve Siege Rhino into Ulrich of the Kralin Horde and, you know, Smash Face probably. Yeah, definitely. This was uh, my first trophy of the day, of the tournament, rather, I, of KeepCon in general. I did not trophy any of the drafts last year. And I also got to play the maximum amount of Magic. Each round was 2-1. There you go. Maximum amount of games. Some of the highlights play-wise for these games, um, other than turn 2 Siege Rhino, was uh, I got to play Sprouting Thrynax, that Jund 3-3 that dies into three Sapperlings. And I got to sacrifice that to cast Obnixless the adversary for casualty oh my so instantly uh, <laughs> oh, having two dear. planeswalkers and then three bodies to defend them as well was quite fun invasion of amonkhet was really good getting to play that and flip that into the same turn flip that into a creature that was rebuying a spell back to my hand that that uh helped me pull ahead in one of the games I also got to, it's not included in this deck picture because I didn't main board it, but I boarded in Rise of the Witch King in one of these games, one of those Lord of the Rings cards. And it turns out that that can not only bring back creatures, it can bring back any non-land permanent. Uh, bring back Omnixels with it? Do the sacrificing. I brought back Binding of the Old Gods. Oh, even better. <laughs> so make your opponent sacrifice a creature, sacrifice my worst creature, then kill your other creature. <laughs> Nice. Yeah, this deck looks sick and uh, a good, clean first trophy. Did you run up against any really tough opponents, or did you kind of... I mean, I know you said they were all 2-1, but did you feel like you were in control the entire draft? I did not, no. They were, the, the games were all very back and forth. I guess a couple of the turn 2 Siege Rhino games were less back and forth. <laughs> but the rest of them, they were still... had a lot of play to them. A lot of making sure you're maximizing everything. Yeah, it wasn't uh, wasn't a cakewalk by any means. 
So if you had to give somebody advice on trying to get their own trophy in the Reading Rainbow Cube, what, uh, what is your little nugget of wisdom after two drafts under your belt? After two drafts? I would definitely recommend, compared to the two approaches that I did, the greedy splash all the spells approach and then this more focused approach, I would definitely recommend the more focused approach because there's still going to be opportunity to have those high-impact spells. Like Dune Blast is still high-impact. Lavalanche won me a game by itself one time. And the speed of the format is deceptive. The, getting that first land free is a, it's a really big difference that you kind of have to play once through to appreciate uh, how how the format develops around it. Yeah, I feel like it's hard to like articulate why it's different because you know it's a, obviously a symmetrical benefit, right? You both start kind of on turn two, but it does feel very different tempo wise to just not have anything in play and have your opponent have, you know, a two drop. Like, you know, I always draw the comparison to like Curious Follower, which is in your pool here, where it's like, what if your Lenore Elf was also a two two and also could tap for whatever color of mana your lands could produce, which in this cube is you have your pillar all the time. So you basically have a two two bird of paradise on turn one. Like it really changes the emotional impact to be like, I haven't even done anything yet and you've already done a turn to play. It's, it's pretty intense. Yeah, I mean, I think also just multicolored spells tend to be a little bit splashier, a little more complex, hence reading rainbow. Uh, they do a lot of stuff, so it's just going to be instead of, you know, here's my green one drop, two drop, three drop, it's here are all my huge splashy things that are all feeling above rate, even given the fact that we're starting on turn two, essentially. Yeah. All right, that's one trophy down. After that, it looks like you went on to the cons expanded cube. Do you have a lot of affection for the cons limited format? Yes, I everybody who drafted cons basically i think uh lists it highly in their all-timers of formats i am among that number cons was a little after i had started my own cube so a lot of those cards ended up making it into my my initial cube that i built personally since as time has gone on a lot of those cards have fallen by the wayside in terms of a power max environment so it felt great to be able to play with a lot of these again I, I really like the the mixture of the fixing in this format. Uh, that there are there are fetches and duels, but there's also slower things like triumphs and just regular tap lands. And it does a great job of evoking the gameplay of the cons blocks without limiting itself just to those sets. I, I think that was a, a really well done cube, and I'm thinking of building something similar to it. Uh, it's it was a great experience. The highest compliment, I think, from uh, from drafting a CubeCon is wanting to clone or make a, something directly inspired by one of the cubes you drafted. So I noticed yes. you have a, a Siege Rhino in this deck. <laughs> yeah, you yeah. Back-to-back back Rhinos? You well. did back-to-back Rhinos, Tim? <laughs> That's very rude. There's also the, the second deck in a row with Dune Blast? Yeah. Um, I, I, t- uh, texted, I was texting my brother because he was not able to be at this event. But he pointed out that, yeah, there's the two Siege Rhinos and the two <laughs> Dune Blasts in both of these. Um, I didn't really realize there was Doom Blast in both of these. I was more focused on the Siege Rhino. If Doom Blast wants to tag along, <laughs> I'm not going to say no. But that Siege Rhino is one of my favorites. Yeah, I mean, this deck looks sweet. You've got a bunch of ways to sort of fill up the graveyard, some removal, a couple of Wraths. I mean, Sidisi looks really strong here. And then you have both Spider Spawning and, and Kessig Cage Breakers, which just seems like a really explosive kind of finisher. Yeah, I sadly never drew the Cage Breakers, but I was very excited to pick that one up as well. So to start this one off, I first picked the spider spawning because I'm not I'm not signing up to KubeCon to pass that card. Especially not in the cons extended cube. No, no. It's, yeah, when you know that there's going to be a Sultai deck to help fill your graveyard. Yeah, definitely. 
the Siege Rhino and the Dune Blast both came along within the first few picks of pack one. So I wasn't sure if I was going to be an Abzan deck slashing spider spawning or if I was going to be leaning more into blue to fill up the graveyard more aggressively for that spider spawning. As the draft went on, I saw a few more blue cards that kind, that kind of were interesting to me and along that game plan. So it ended up being, I guess, mostly black, green, splash, blue, and splash white. But blue is more relevant earlier in the deck. The, the, other, the other white cards can come along later on and still be fine. In addition to the mana fixing, there is also some fixing I picked up in the form of creatures with both Skittering Surveyor and Pilgrim's Eye. Uh, when you're drafting this type of spider spawning deck, you just want to have a bunch of cheap chump blockers that will get you incidental value to fill up your graveyard along the way to help you get to your late game and cast your expensive slasher spells. So those were helpful pickups. During the draft, I had to. I saw Sadisi, the Brood Tyrant, one of my favorite cards in this type of archetype, uh, pretty early in pack three, but I had to make the discipline pick. I picked Polluted Delta over it. I was very pleased when that did end up coming around in pack three. Discipline rewarded. Yes. Vegetables eaten, dessert achieved. I felt like I was a little light on creatures in this deck. Um, so I'm playing a couple of creatures that I'm not as thrilled with. The Plaxmata, I think it's called. The blue, technically mono blue card that dies if you don't spend green mana to cast it. And like the, the Guild Globe, if that could have been another cheap creature that kind of got value along the way, that would have been helpful. But I can't really complain with how the game's played out. Everything worked pretty well for me. Yeah, it looks like you made it all the way to the finals and then ended up falling in the finals to a like Boros Morph Manifest deck. Is that an aggressive deck in this format or is that more value-oriented? It was kind of mid-rangey. So there were some aggressive creatures like the red morph that flips for free that makes a creature not able to block this turn. Um, but there's also a lot of more grindy cards like Master of the Unseen, which is a one and a white for an enchantment that lets you manifest for three and a white. So just put the top card of your library into play face down as a 2-2 creature. Most of the games drug out late, so there was eight mana on the board for the opponent, so they could do multiple manifests a turn had things like Exalted Angel, Ashcloud Phoenix, Scargan Hellkite, so no shortage of top end. It wasn't like I got run over necessarily right away, but right. there, there, there's a lot of grinding out value as well. So yeah, that, that deck was sweet, and I was uh, not too disappointed to lose to that because the games were still great. You said, I think you said the one thing you would do about this deck differently is maybe just try and get more cheap creatures, which just didn't kind of shake out in the draft. Otherwise, the deck functioned well. Yeah, definitely. And looking through it, the, the Hooded Hydra was a very powerful, very flexible and fun card as well. You can play that down for a morph and then flip it up later on and have this massive 5-5 five, five that dies into value. The Urborg, 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 Lurgoyf. Oh my god, it's the Urborg Lurgoyf! Um, <laughs> <laughs> was a... I, I think a ten eleven, at one point. Oh my goodness, that is was, too uh, big. <laughs> I liked, uh, like playing with that card. I played with that uh, a little bit in Dominaria United when that came out, but it makes perfect sense in this sort of uh, cube. 
So is it safe to say at this point that your overarching cube strategy is more or less take and cast Seed Rhino? That's kind of what it all comes down to? I mean, if, if, if I get that chance, I'm, I'm going to take it. Do you consider yourself like a, a fundamentally mid-rangey player? Is that like the kind of deck you like to pilot most? Or is that just a beloved card, but you like to play all the different kinds of archetypes? I like all the different kinds of archetypes. It's just what's getting passed to me? What do I feel like prioritizing and playing at that time? But it's, it's been a while for Siege Rhino, so I was not going to turn down that opportunity to play with it some more. And especially just in this context, there's, what are you going to take over Siege Rhino? I was surprised it made it to me. <laughs> yeah, I guess, you know, I, I tend to be the coward that's like, three different colors, what if I can't cast this card? Uh, and then I, my opponent beats me with it, and I'm like, well... I guess I shouldn't have been afraid in the draft. So your opponent beats you with it when they have you know three basics in play. Yeah, they just go they just go plains, swamp, forest. Never mm-hmm. didn't have it, and mm-hmm. I'm like, great, 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 great. Love this for me. These are the the cubes to draft the seed rhino into the reading rainbow cube, and then the cons expanded cube, which is explicitly telling you to focus your mana fixing on these wedges. So the, these are perfect places for it to turn up, and the easiest places for uh, to cast it. So going into the third draft of the day, I got to ask, how is your stamina in an event like this? Because I think I speak for both Anthony and I when I say that after doing two whole back-to-back cube drafts with all of the matches, and it looks like you played all but one, you had one match you won 2-0, all the other ones were 2-1 or 1-2, so you played a ton of magic in the morning and afternoon. How are you feeling going into an evening draft? Are you still raring to go, or are you starting to get a little bit tired? I'm still raring to go. It's hard to kind of turn down the energy of KubeCon that's around you. So, so yeah, I, I, there's not like many other times when I'm faced with this, with trying to play an entire day of Magic. I'm not like going to GPs or anything else. So it's just kind of cube nights and the occasional pre-release or three-round draft at the local game store. But when you're in this rare opportunity to just jam all these different cubes that you don't get to see on a regular basis, yeah, I was, I was feeling the energy. I was feeling the energy going into this draft by the time this draft was over i was i was ready to call it a night (laughs) (laughs) okay well tell us about this third draft (laughs) then i guess this third draft is from the cube called the bun magic cube i'm not sure if you guys name this doesn't make sense why is it named yeah doesn't that seem to have anything to do with food yeah Um, it also doesn't i'm I'm looking for a siege rhino and i'm not i'm not (laughs) finding it yeah you know that was my main criticism that i had noted down here (laughs) <laughs> Couldn't um, play start... Siege Rhino in your Jeskai deck. <laughs> well, this is actually a five-color deck, so I I, I could have uh, played. Oh, I Siege do see Rhino. a Vanishing Verse sneaking around. Oh, and there's a Ren and Six too. Okay, look at six. that Vanishing Verse and Ren and Six rounding it out for a full five colors. Yeah, so I definitely started more on the Jeskai lean. Um, I first picked a Swords of Plowshares, started to try to keep on that pace of rounding out some early interaction, some fixing. I didn't really kind of solidify a direction. And then as, as the draft went on, I just kept picking up these incidental fixing lands where basically whenever I see a pack and there's nothing like clear for that, that I'm like thrilled to throw into my deck, I'll just take a fixing land and see what happens with it later on. Following the classic Sam Black game plan? Yeah, yeah, definitely. The Renin 6 Impact 3 wield, I remember either opening Oof. that or getting it, uh, seeing it second and feeling silly that I had to pass it, but I needed something else in that pack. And then that came around, and then I think the field of the dead was also something in pack three that wheeled. 
So when I went to lay out my deck, I saw all these fetch lands, saw all these different shock lands. I said, hey, this Field of the Dead, this Renin Six, this might, uh, this might work out. So that's, that's, that's what I built, uh, this kind of five-color Jeskai deck uh, with Field of the Dead, with, what is this, 11 different non-basics aside from Field of the Dead, Splashing very lightly for green for Ren and Six and black for Vanishing Burst and Colagon's Command. Playing this cube, I got a appreciation for why Andy gets so frustrated with this play sometimes because there are so many options when your cube is this low and everything is this powerful, and it is very hard to play. And especially with this mana base, because you'll look at your hand and you'll see like one shock land and one fetch land, and you'll all these different cards, and you have to remember the permutations of yeah. uh, what shock lands you can fetch in, and if you do that, what lines does that close for you several turns down the line, uh, because you won't have your double white on turn four or anything like that. So the, these uh, these games are very very intense, very thorough, very draining. So by the by the end of this one, I was ready to call it a night. I don't know whether to take that as a compliment or an insult that it, it took all the the vigor out of you that KubeCon had injected. But uh, I think this deck is really cool. It's definitely like the five-color deck, it doesn't come together every time in this cube. And I think wheeling a gold card in red and six, that's such a high pick. And also wheeling the Field of the Dead seems like that's what the table wanted you to be doing for sure. How did the matches actually play out? Um, in the round one, I was facing a Jeskai pretty much aggro deck. Uh, sort of almost spell-slingerly, but splashing white, at least for Monastery Mentor. They had Ragavan, they had Sprite Dragon, they had some efficient early interaction and cantrips, so those sorts of things. I went 1-2 and two in that match. I had a couple of draws where the early interaction wasn't lining up very well. There was one turn where I had to, in a desperate attempt to kill a Monastery Mentor, I had to try to just shock it with Kologon's Command into one open mana, and... They did have anything at all to trigger it and save their yeah. monastery mentor, and after that, that was that was pretty much the game. But the games were still enjoyable. Fable of the Mirror Breaker is a uh, very fun card to play with. In one of the games, I got to copy Seagate Stormcaller with uh, with oh, Fable sick. of the Mirror Breaker, so I got to play this the Stormcaller, get that trigger, copy it, get another trigger. Path to Exile, not Path to Swords of Plowshares. I don't think I've ever seen anyone do that in this cube. I think you may be the first person to do that in this environment. It was fun. Fairy Mastermind was another one I got to copy. So at the end of your turn, copy Fairy Mastermind, activate Fairy Mastermind. We both draw. I have two Fairy Mastermind triggers, so I'm drawing two extra cards as well from their wow. trigger. So yeah, a lot of like ways to grind into the late game, it looks like. How did the rest of the matches go, though? So you, you, you fell to the Jeskai aggro deck in round one. Some interaction just lined up kind of poorly. What, what were the rest of the matches like? Yeah, round two, I played against a green-white deck. Going a little bit bigger, had like a Seekers Chariot, Primetime, some of the ramp spells to help get there. Um, and this person was... passed Field of the Dead. I don't remember where they were situated on the table, probably. Okay. But I guess they weren't... Uh, if they're more focused in green-white, that they weren't going to be taking as much it. of the fixing. Yeah, they did have a shell dock that they fetched up. So there was a blue splash in there. But th that was the match where I was doing all this copying with Fable of the Mirror Breaker to kill multiple things with Seagate Stormcaller. So my removal was a lot more present in that match. 
the final, the, not the finals, but the last round of the day for me was against a red-black deck. We went to three games. We went to turns. It was very grindy. They had things like Season Pyromancer, Kroxa, Rabblemaster, Unearth, Embercleave, Inquisition. So some very efficient disruption and very quick pressure. I was able to finally turn the corner and when we were going to turns, able to show that I had Wandering Emperor in my hand with a Ren of Six and an active Field of the Dead in play. So I was pretty pretty set for a long game against an opponent who was top decking and I was able to pull that one out. That's a long day. Winning in three rounds at the Bud Magic Cube at the end of a three draft day is definitely exhausting in turns. So I, I can definitely understand why you felt like you were uh, ready for bed after that. And it, day one, seven and two. That's a fantastic record. Losing two matches, winning seven. How did you feel at the end of day one? Did you feel like you were in the in the pocket and playing well? Yeah, I was happy with the cubes I was drafting. Um, all of the cubes that I was placed in were my first picks for that time slot. So that was a nice little run of good luck. The games were fun. The decks were fun. KubeCon is in general is a blast. So I was I was thrilled with the day. Let's go on to Saturday then. And your first draft Saturday was the one micro cube in the main event, which is called the 15 ounce micro brew. Tell uh, people that maybe don't know what the sort of stipulation and uh, gimmick with this cube is. Sure. So this is drafted with uh, two packs of 20, uh, two packs of 10 cards. Sorry. So there's 20 card draft pools and your deck has to be exactly 15 cards. The other stipulation is that players do not lose if they would draw from an empty library. So there's this tension with this deck of, do you want to try to be the aggressive deck and get your opponent dead before they can get all of their cards or before they can set up whatever late game engine they have? Or do you want to be the kind of deck that can have a kind of recursive game plan? So rebuying things, kind of infinite loops that span over multiple turns. These games can kind of end up getting boiled down to like a reduced state where you can kind of explain, okay, now that you don't have any cards in your library and I have this still left in play, this is going to end up accruing enough value over the rest of the game that you won't be able to stop it and I'll be able to win. So that combined with kind of being able to see all of your opponent's cards in the game, and you can kind of take notes of those, make uh, notes of what you've seen in the future games, kind of deduce what they might still have in their hand allows for very strategic, very in-depth games where you're kind of playing around what you think they might have. You're kind of changing your deck up between rounds for key sideboard slots. So there, there's a lot of play to these. Uh, these games can also be very grindy and very mentally taxing, but it's, it's a unique experience, but I think a very fun one as well. I've drafted this cube once on the NTG Cube Talk Discord, and that was my first time with the micro cubes, but I fell in love with it after that. I really wonder if Sam Black played this cube at any point over the weekend, because I feel like this style of cube draft where you're like inherently building a little like looping, cohesive plan deck caters so directly to his skill set and draft preferences that I feel like he would be a, a shoe-in for a good performance in this particular cube. But uh, you had a great performance with this particular deck. How did this draft pan out for you? So I first played the Goblin Welder. Um, that can do a lot in this sort of format where you're, if you find an artifact that can have an enter the battlefield ability and make another artifact, for example, or just rebuy a key piece 
when another one goes to the graveyard. That's something that can do a lot in this sort of cube. I picked up a Jadar, Ghoul Caller of Nephalia, pretty early. That's a aggressive card that I've been very impressed with. And just that never-ending stream of 2-2s, you can do a lot with that in this sort of cube. And I ended up in this kind of black-red, sort of aggressive, but also sort of late-game-oriented deck. So it had a lot of flexibility. You can have draws where you have your one drop in Clay Revenant into Jadar, into maybe a Sakenzin Smelter, and kind of pressure your opponent quickly. Or you can have draws where you have the Oni Cult Anvil, and or a Mask of Immolation, and kind of over the course of several turns, just kind of have that consistent pressure that you're applying over the long run. I was able to pick up three spot removal spells in Mizian Mortars, Abraid, and Fire Prophecy to kind of interact with what my opponent was doing. And that uh, that was very fun to play. Yeah, this deck seems really cool. I feel like it, looking at it first, it was like, it looks a little bit more like my regular cube, to be honest. It's like more low power. I'm familiar with these cards. But then as I look at it more, like you're describing, every one of these cards fits into this sort of like network of possible little loops you can set up and ways that you can create inevitabilities, which is, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's a cool little puzzly environment. Very puzzly. Yeah, definitely. One card I want to call that in the sideboard is Yadaro, Wandering Monster. That is a card that you're never casting because you normally only run five lands in this kind of cube. I ran four in my initial builds. But if you cycle it enough, then you get to put it into play for free. And it wasn't a synergistic piece with what I was doing, so I ended up not including it in my main deck, but I would often sideboard it in as to have something that my opponents hadn't seen game one where I could present a different type of game plan. And I had to also sideboard it in in round one because my opponent played a greater Gargadon and nothing in my deck lined up profitably <laughs> against a greater Gargadon. So I needed to have something else to try to deal with that. So I was I was able to get there in round one after boarding in the Yadaro. My opponent was on a very cool deck with a bunch of shrines. They had the Omnath, where your green mana doesn't empty, and it gets plus one, plus one for each green mana that you have in that's your mana pool. That's a very cool card for this cube. That's, that's a certain yeah. kind of inevitability for sure. Yeah, and they had, along with that, Talons of Wirewood to give your either Greater Gargadon or your Omnath Trample. And that's something that you can rebuy. So that was not easy to grind through. But you did. You got there round one, taking it 2-1. Yep. Round two, I got there 2-0. My opponent had a kind of, I guess, Naya deck. They had Felden that can clone things from your graveyard. The Twin Shot Sniper, which was one of the good things to clone. Brea's Apprentice. They ended up boarding in Struggle to Survive as a way to kind of shuffle their shuffle the graveyards back in once it kind of became apparent in the first game that I had probably the better late-game engine once the Felden was removed. And then round three, the one that I lost in the finals, I played against probably the coolest deck that I played against all weekend. And uh, that's not like a knock on anybody else. That's just kind of a testament to how this format is set up where you have the opportunity to build such a closely knit interlocking deck where all of the cards, you only get like 10 spell slots, but each one of them can kind of be related close to each other. So this person was on Chatterfang. So they were a black green deck and they had a couple ways of making squirrels in Nested Shambler and Squirrel Sanctuary. But they also had ways of making squirrels in the form of just making other tokens. 
So they had a tough cookie that can make an additional token when it comes into play. Gala Greeters, which lines up very well. When you play a creature, you can make a treasure token, which from my understanding would also make another squirrel, which would also trigger Gala Greeters again. And then they also had the Underworld yeah, wow. Cookbook and Oval Chase Daredevil as a way. So those two, that's just a looping combo where you discard the Oval Chase Daredevil, you make a food, the Oval Chase Daredevil in your graveyard sees the food, goes back to your hand. So you just kind of net one food each time. If you have Chatterfang in play, you're also netting a squirrel. And then the Underworld Cookbook itself can rebuy a creature from your graveyard. Sounds really sick. All of the threat package was fitting together very nicely. And they had some exile-based removal in Soul Transfer, which was often turned on for both halves because they had the Squirrel Sanctuary as the enchantment and either the tough cookie or the food from the Underworld Cookbook as the artifact to both exile an opponent's creature and rebuy a creature. And the exile part of the removal is just huge in this format where you're shutting down part of somebody else's engine. Like, they're not able to rebuy that or recur something anymore so that was that was a very sweet deck we had some grindy games in game two we got to a board state where i had boarded in the yadaro and i knew that the opponent had the soul transfer in their hand because they hadn't played that yet so i got to the point where the yadaro was just in my hand i had cycled it three times so that the next time i cycled it it would go into play but i couldn't pull the trigger because I knew that if I played that, they would exile with Soul Transfer, they would rebuy something else, and they would be too far behind. But I was winning the long game because I had my only call Anvil up or my Mask of Immolation, one of those two. I had some late-game inevitability loop going where I would be able to cycle through that turn after turn and still keep the threat of the Yadaro, the 8-8 Trample Haster. So I've kind of we were in this game of chicken and I kind of forced my opponent to spend their removal spell on something they didn't want to. So I got to keep my eight, eight trampler. That's awesome. So either they were, you know, using their soul transfer to buy back their threat to tip the inevitability scale in their favor, but that meant that they couldn't necessarily beat the Yadaro or if they waited for the Yadaro, they were not going to be able to actually match your engine. Yeah. Yeah. I wasn't going to give them the opportunity to see the Yadaro because I was going to just grind them out before then. Yeah. That was like just this past, just yesterday in our weekly cube night, I was playing this control deck against my opponent, and I forget how I saw what they drew. I, I must have Inquisition of Cause like them or something in the early part of the game, and I knew they had Primeval Titan in hand, and I also knew they were a Field of the Dead deck, and I could not be to resolve Primeval Titan. And my opponent got to six mana, I knew it was a control deck, and had open mana, and they were just like, nah, I'm just going to keep animating these creature lands and attacking you, and I'm like, well, I can't tap out of Counterspell, because then you just prime time me, and I also can't keep taking all these hits from these creature lands and it was just like uh, i got pinched yeah and that kind of thing can happen in regular magic when you're seeing that additional information but it just kind of happens organically when you're in a micro cube just from yeah seeing the prior decks yeah this cube seems really cool we've talked about my own degenerate micro cube which uses very very similar rules i've made the pack that's a little bigger over the years but basically the same rule set as this cube but it has very different design goals, and I've often wondered what a fairer version of that cube might look like, and this seems like a really great example of it. Yeah, I'm a big fan. I've I've spent some time trying to design my own microcube. It's it's very difficult <laughs> to to fill out a microcube with uh, enough slots where they're all kind of calibrated that they can 
belong in different decks and fit in different ways. So that's a very challenging project that is not a top priority for me, but it's something I'm definitely interested in in the long run. Yeah, I found designing one to be difficult too. I think one of the big challenges is that if there is a disparity in the balance of the cube, like oftentimes in a typical cube, if you have a power outlier or like an overly dominant strategy, it's buried so much in variance that it's like hard to figure out and people still have fun playing the games or whatever. If you put something that's a little too good in a micro cube, then the person's deck does it every single game. And it's like, well, okay, I guess that doesn't work. And uh, these problems are just much more apparent, I think, in a environment where there's so little variance from game to game yeah, relative to regular magic, at least. Definitely. All right, let's get on to what appears to be, from the game and match record, your most dominant draft of the weekend of Maze Fey Cube. Yeah, the clean 3060. So this is a lower-powered thematic environment. I had drafted this once before online, but that was with, I think, either three players or four players. And then we had either four or five bots to round it out. So that wasn't necessarily the greatest... uh, example of what the cube can do but it was a nice enough introduction that i was able to familiarize myself with somewhat of the environment from that i was very high on adventure cards just the the value that those give you as some early interaction and then late game can be very strong so i was picking those very highly i ended up getting two of the blue uh, i think the stronger blue adventure cards in the I can't read what these are. One of these is the, the serpent, and then the other one's the new one it from... It looks like Obira's Attendance and Sword Coast Serpent, or are you also talking about Horned Lock Whale? Horned Lock Whale, that one too. Yeah, so those two are very cheap interaction that can help you get to the late game, and then once you're at the late game, they also ha- are just gigantic body that takes over the game. I played against this Sword Coast Serpent in a lower-powered cube and was very impressed by it because it's just like... For those that don't know, it's uh, it's got a two-mana bounce spell on the adventure side at instant speed. And then the creature side is just a seven-mana 6-6 six, six that can't be blocked as long as you've cast a non-creature spell this turn. And in a grindy cube, that just ends the game, basically. It's like, well, now I cast two spells, and you take 12, and you can't do anything about it. And so I've been really impressed with that card in an environment of the appropriate power level. Yeah, definitely. I picked those up later. So what I started with in this pack was Halo Forager, that 3-1 fairy from... Yeah, uh, March of the Machine, I think. They can flash something back from either player's graveyard. That just seemed like far and away the best card in the pack and set me on a direction. I picked Una's Prowler pretty highly. I got an Una's Blackguard to kind of go with this uh, fairy theme that I had going on. And then just kind of just a bunch of cheap fairies, cheap flyers, cheap interaction to kind of balance out these adventure cards I was getting for the late game. Una's Blackguard overperformed for me by a lot. Getting to get that bonus on a flying fairy, then starting to attack and strip resources out of your opponent's hand was huge. But I also got to curve Una's Blackguard into later a Marsh Flitter, which is a a four mana 1-1 that makes two 1-1s when it enters the battlefield. But all of them are rogues in addition in their creature types so they all got plus one plus one yeah. counters that and seems I, really good in this environment specifically like that's the kind of powerful synergy that must go over the top of anything your opponents are doing pretty much yeah it, uh i got to connect for a couple turns where my opponent was discarding twice from from those uh from those hits i wasn't planning on going green but i was able to pick up enough 
incidental fixing, like the, the fixing that I did pick up, the, the green thriving land, the Vivid Creek, and the Terramorphic Expanse, those were regular fixing for my blue-black deck that I was picking highly. But I got the incidental black-green land and the incidental blue-green land late enough that I was able to splash for these high-impact green cards. And the, the, the deck was very strong. It all worked out. I was very, very pleased with this. I, I think this was the, you can judge it by the record as well, but the, within the games, I felt the most in control with this cube, with this deck. How did most of the games go? Were you more aggressive and mostly doing like Blackguard into Marsh Flitter things, or is it more like a control deck where you were just trading off resources early and saying, eventually I will get you with my giant Lock Whale and Sea Serpent? It was a mix. For the first round, I was against the Naya deck. Uh, they had the 4-4 that made a wolf. They had like Goblin Barrage. They had some other creatures that were pressuring me. So that one, I was more on the back foot. I was trying to use my early interaction to drag it to the late game and then eventually take over with my serpents and whales and flyers. In a lot of the other games, I was able to land an early Uno's Black Guard get a couple of fairies down with counters on them, start attacking my opponent's hand, and then also use the cheap interaction along the way to stem the bleeding that I was taking. So it was it was definitely a mixture of both. My second round was against a blueback fairies deck, so they had a lot of flying blockers. Game two, uh, we had a kind of stalled board state because they landed a high fey negotiator, which is a 3-5 flyer that's very hard to attack through. And then they also had the the Changeling. It's five mana that has all the abilities of creatures in graveyards. So that was a flying lifelinker that uh, I needed Yikes. to navigate through. So we were kind of in a stalemate for a while. And eventually I was able to rebuy my adventure fairy that drank the power of a creature. So I was able to organize an attack where I attacked in, drank the flying lifelink blocker, and I also had a 2-4 flyer from the Una's Blackguard, and I was able to nameless inversion my unblocked 2-4 flyer oh, to use it as a sick. pump spell for, for uh, wow. Sneak and Lethal. That's, I hope May is listening and uh, taking great joy in that, because that sounds like such a sick sequence to end a game. Yeah, I love seeing uh, Quickling in this list. I got to draft this cube as well, and Quickling was a kind of card that I really enjoy playing with, and it felt really good, especially with the adventure cards. Quickling was great. Yeah, Quickling is a card that I've long had an uh, affinity for, but it's it's hard to find a home for it. And this place, it's, it's a fit thematically. It's a fit power level-wise. So I I'm, I'm was really glad to see it here, and it, it played out very well. And in the finals here, I see you dumpstered uh, none other than last year's CubeCon champion, Caleb Durward. Perhaps a sign of how the weekend was going to go. Is this when you knew? Is <laughs> this, this when the you moment? knew? <laughs> this is when I felt good about making top 64. Um, nice. <laughs> because I, wasn't, I still wasn't sure. I, I, it was probably still possible for me to miss going into that round. I was, I think, passing to Caleb, or Caleb was sitting close to me in this draft. Uh, he was saying after he was building his deck that he was worried about scrubbing out but meeting him in the finals we could see that that didn't happen he had a mono red deck that he turn one started with the foundry street denison and i terrifying yes i i had the uh the one three adventure fairy in my hand which i had used to great effect as a uh adventure card to kind of mill stuff 
in the past, rebuy it, get some value, and then play it later on. And I made the call, okay, nope, that's not this rule. This is today going to be just a 1-3. And then today I played you are the one, a blocker. I played the 1-3. Today you have power and toughness. <laughs> I played the 1-3, and then he nodded, and then he didn't attack into it. I was like, yes. So things with power and toughness can still still be necessary and still worked out. Halo Forager also played a big role in this game. In both of the games, it was able to flash one of uh, flashback one of Caleb's removal spells on one of his creatures to, to finish something off. And, and it was just a gigantic beating in both times. One of them, it was a, a, a searing, searing blood, I think. Not the landfall version, but the one that I think deals two damage to a creature and three damage to its controller. Yeah. So putting down a 3-1 flyer and killing your thing with your own card and dealing you incidental damage was very, very strong. Wow. I got to board in some filler cards that I thought I thought that weren't very that I didn't really consider would be impactful. Things like the one mana flash creature in blue that can make something get minus two minus zero, just like as a combat trick or a surprise blocker. I boarded in a one three that makes a food when it enters the battlefield. For some of my slower stuff, like I don't need that. I don't need a a counter spell against Caleb or some of my more expensive things. Those were relevant as well when I've boarded those in. So those helped out in the game too. So at this point, you have to be locked for top 64. You're 12 and 3 going into the last draft of the main event, which I'm, I'm sure someone could have crunched some numbers and figured out that that was pretty well locked. See, I didn't crunch those numbers though. So I was not. Uh, <laughs> I, I wanted one more to uh, get mathematically locked. So if I had one more win, then. It didn't matter if everybody blow me trophied. I would still be in top 64. So that was that was the goal. Just get one more win. And then what was your third draft of the day? The last draft of the main event? Third draft was Dragons of Winter's Night from Chill MTG. So this is a desert cube. It is themed around um, dragons and snow as the kind of the broader environment. So all the lands, uh, most of the lands are snow lands. I think all the basics are. And you have to draft all of your lands since there are no, there's no land station after the fact. So packs are slightly bigger. There's three packs of 18. We actually had seven for this. So one of the people who was put into this did not show up. Boo. Uh, so, what the judge recommend- <laughs> so what the judge recommended that we do was, since the cube is designed to draft all of the cards, and there's a chance that the packs we set aside for that person had a higher number than average of basic lands in them of one type or anything like that like that's that's always a possibility so their recommendation was that we increase the pool and increase the size of the packs uh, to kind of offset that to reduce that risk of maybe some lands that people need are not going to be included in the pool so that's what we ended up doing we drafted three packs of 20 instead of the three packs of 18 that are standard i drafted a Blue, black, splashing green zombies deck. I started off with a land, I think. Uh, the the direction that I got was from Tormod. Uh, Tormod the Desecrator. Desecrator, I think, yeah. So it's the one where if a creature would leave your graveyard, you get to make a zombie. And my deck, I was pretty stoked with how I was set up to take advantage of that. So I've got Master of Death that can work with that. I've got Relentless Dead. I've got Tortured Existence, which is just an infinite amount of putting creatures back and forth from your graveyard to 
make more zombies. That's I've got grave crawler. So I was I was pretty excited to play these matches. I ended up getting the buy in round one, so I was also excited to mathematically lock up Doc sixty four. But when I got to my matches, I ended up uh, not doing as well. In, in round two, I got steamrolled by a white red aggressive equipment deck that I just did not have very good interaction for. So my removal is much more geared towards the late game. There's Chilled to the Bone, a four mana spell that kills a creature. There's Deathwind, it's a X spell that gives a creature minus X minus X. So not very efficient early interaction, and that's definitely what I needed if I wanted to try to keep pace with that white red aggressive deck. That did end up going to go on to be the trophy winner. And then in round two, I had sorry, round three, I had some more back and forth games against a Grixis deck. The game that I won, I hard leaned on Cryptbreaker, so I was able to play that turn one, turn two, start making zombies. Then start drawing cards. They did eventually kill the Crypt Breaker, but I was able to rebuy it and then keep drawing cards. The other games, I was pressured. I was overwhelmed with other creatures. Didn't have the removal or the early blockers lined up to push myself into the late game. So ended up with a one and two on Dragons of Winter's Night. Do you feel like this was something that went wrong with the draft just because you hadn't played this queue before and you were trying to like get your head around the environment or do you chalk it up to like just how the matchups happened to shake out but you think your deck was still successful in the context like what do you think went wrong here? I think it's a bit of both. I'm not sure how much more early interaction there is in the cube. I remember seeing a smother that could have been another spell that ended up passing probably for a land at some point. But Desert Cubes, it's really hard to kind of piece together all of the things. You need to enact your own game plan and to interact with your opponent's game plan and the lands for you to cast your spells. It's hard to keep track of everything. So there might have been more in the cube that I just wasn't as drawn to or as cognizant of, but it, it could have also been part of the draws. Like I did have Priest of the Haunted Edge, which is a two-mana... 04 that can be an early blocker that turns into a removal spell later. I have the Fleshbag Marauder that can make opponent sack creatures. The tap lands were especially punishing for me, though, because I had lots of ways to spend my mana, and whenever I had to put a tap land into play, that was just pushing me further behind someone with a proactive start. Those feel the worst when you have a perfect curve-out answer to something, but you just have a tap land. I d- disliked that feeling so much. There was a long time where I ran no tap lands in the Bun Magic Cube. I was like, never again. This will never happen to me. I've since toned it back a little bit. But yeah, that's an awful feeling when you just can't play your spells on time only because your lands happen in the battlefield tapped. Well, the zombies entered the battlefield tapped too some of the time. So Yeah, yeah that's zombies true. Zombies are not always the best blockers. That's also... That's a thing I often... I have a tendency to overlook that on cards sometimes when creatures are in the battlefield tapped. Uh, like I always forget that about specifically Rise from the Tides, which is a card I really like, and I've had it in and multiple like, decks. I'm ready to stabilize now. Yeah, I'm like time to stabilize. Oops, I'm dead because sorry, they're wet zombies. They <laughs> yeah. are not ready to go. <laughs> yeah. Dry them out first. Not your finest draft to end the day, but still a fantastic record across these first two days. Easy enough for top sixty-four. What was your top choice for the cube you actually wanted to draft in the top sixty-four? My top choice was the data-generated Vintage Cube, which is the one that I ended up getting paired in. My thought process there was that Vintage Cube is one of the cubes I'm most familiar with. 
not necessarily from playing all the time, but I watch streaming of that a lot when that is on. Um, I'll play a couple or two or three when it's on Moto, but I don't really go that hard on it. But being a smaller list, being specifically designed to be kind of a stock list, because this list is put together from an algorithm of a bunch of different vintage cubes, kind of pulling together the most commonly played cards. I thought being familiar with that would help out. And also, it's a high-variance format. And I knew the other names in the top 64. I didn't anticipate being the best player in my draft pod. So I was thinking, let's let's spin the wheel. Let's, let's get some high-variance formats up in here. Interesting. Well, you ended up drafting what looks like a really sick deck. How did you get into this, like, Mardu reanimator? I guess it's really just black-red. You just happen to have uh, white on the top end there, and that Caracas was probably not actually being tapped for mana as much as it was just bouncing your opponent's stuff, I imagine. Yeah, the Caracas was a defensive pick. It was good against me because I picked up an early Grizzlebrand, and it can, like, if my round one opponent, for example, was trying to throw the breach in a Nulamog, it could say, not today to that. I first picked an Urza Saga, and then I got past to reanimate as second pick, and then I pretty hard went to reanimate after that. I didn't really consider the Urza Saga plan as much or see things to support that. But I got basically all I wanted from this. I've got Entomb, Reanimate, Dark Ritual. I got some early interaction. I've got plenty of discard outlets and Collective Brutality, Liliana of the Veil. For Reanimator targets, I've got Grizzlebrand, Grave Titan, Elishnorn. All of those were relevant. Fable of the Mirror Breaker is a silly, silly magic card. I picked up a Mana Crypt to accelerate. The one thing that I was mostly missing out on was Ar- Archon of Cruelty. But that was sadly in the same pack as a Badlands, which I desperately needed in order to make my deck more consistent. I really wanted to be casting this Fable of the Mirror Breaker, and I had other reanimator targets at the time. So yeah, th- this was this came together very impressively. I had the opportunity for a lot of explosive draws, but I also had kind of a more fair game plan I could do with Deathrite Shaman and Grim Lava Mancer, Fable of the Mirror Breaker, quote-unquote fair plan for Fable of the Mirror Breaker. <laughs> more fair than turn one Grizzlebrand. Yeah, yeah, more, more, more fair, comparatively fair. That's the other thing about this cube. This is a 360 cube, and it is a vintage cube. So that means that every piece of power is opened in every draft. And every time you don't see a piece of power, you don't get to say, oh, maybe it just wasn't in the pool. You get to say, oh, my opponents have power and I do not. I have a mana crypt, so that's close. Yeah, I say I see no Moxin or Lotus here. I mean, like, mana crypt, kind of honorary power, I think, but none of the actual, you know, factual power in this cube, in this deck. So even though the deck looks really strong, did you feel trepidation going into your matches thinking that you didn't have the same power as your opponents? I had... I was I was happy with my deck, and I was happy to be in the top 64. I, I thought that this had a realistic shot at making it, um, but it, part of the reason that I picked this is because it's Vintage Cube, so it's still going to be high variance. But I did I did have tools to combat most of the strategies. Like, Ellis Norn does a great Wrath of God impression against a deck that's trying to go wide or have a bunch of mana dorks. Mm-hmm. Grizzlebrand can close out games really quickly. I've got interaction with Liliana the Veil. That can carry a game. I have ways of removing problematic early creatures. So th- I felt I had a good game plan. I had 
good lines of play against what everyone else is trying to do. You mentioned in round one you got to Caracas. Somebody's breached Ulamog. Did they just scoop on the spot, go home? No, it, it didn't actually come up. They, they uh. were trying to uh, do the through the breach, but I don't think that I had the actual Caracas in play. This was a blue-red through the breach, also Splinter Twin deck. So Pestermite and Splinter Twin, I think, was their combo that they had. In addition to just the interaction and the cantripping for that deck to try to find their combo pieces. They did get to twin me out in one of the games, but I was able to grind out one in one of the games. I think it was mostly a Deathrite Shaman and Grim Lava Mancer win. And then in another one, I think I got off a reanimator start and was able to carry that game. In round two, I was played against a Salti deck that had Ancestral Recall, Vast Bond, Upheaval, Grist, Mystic Confluence, Miscalc. So kind of a Salti ramp value upheaval pile. I had a very big punt in game two of that match. I had one game one in game two. I was not on my first plan of reanimator. I was kind of doing the Deathrite Shaman, Grim Lava Mancer, Fable of the Mirror Baker plan. I discarded Grizzlebrand to Fable of the Mirror Breaker, and I had a Grim Lava Mancer in play. And I was slowly accruing more value. I was attacking and pressuring my opponent. They weren't doing a whole lot. Eventually, they tried to kill my Grim Lava Mancer, and I exiled an Incinerate and a land from my graveyard and left the Grizzlebrand in play against a deck playing black mana. So, of course, the next thing that they played was Animate Dead on my Grizzlebrand. Mm. And then they were able to stabilize and win from there. So I was kicking myself a little bit from that one. And you feel like that was actually a punt and not just information you didn't really have? Like, you had seen Swamps. You think it was, like, correct in that position to get rid of the Grizzlebrand, even if you don't know what's in your opponent's deck? Yeah, because that's the only that's basically the only way I lose that game, I think. Gotcha. You were far enough ahead that something crazy had to happen for your opponent. Yeah, if I leave that in play for them to be able to reanimate, then that's the way I lose that game. And I had enough on board and in hand that I didn't need to be playing for that opportunity to reanimate later on. But thankfully, there is no justice in this world. So I was able to pull <laughs> off a quick, quick reanimator combo in uh, game three. I was able to turn one Vamp Tutor, go find Collective Brutality, escalate Collective Brutality to kill your Mana Dork and duress you to see that the way is clear. Thankfully, there was no animate dead after I discarded my Gristlebrand. And then the next turn, I was able to reanimate it and win the game from there. And Gristlebrand from there. Yeah, if uh, if they had it, then I was going to just shake their hand, <laughs> move on with open play. But being able to put that together so quickly, I just thought it was worth it to take that chance. Then the finals. I uh, I was watching a bit of your finals because you were playing against our friend Jay, who was uh, the Eternal Weekend Legacy Champion last year in 2022, made it to the finals in this draft against you, and you took him down. How did that match actually go for most of it? So the first game was really, really quick because Jay went turn one Soul Ring into Rakdos Signet and then turn two land Chaos Defiler. Can that destroy lands? No, I don't think it... It didn't destroy a land. It did destroy something. It, I think it only destroys non-land permanence. But then you're also just on a four-turn clock. Well, yeah, I, I had to take tur- my tur- next turn off to kill that thing. And then I think he followed it up with the green initiative creature. So, okay. so that's that, pretty that, bad. <laughs> that game was uh, 
not very close. I was able to get the next two games, though. I think I had Elish Norn in play at one time to wipe out a bunch of mana dorks and get quick Gristlebrand down. And those those were those felt more fair to me, I'll say. I was also able to dodge the turn one soul ring. <laughs> when so. I won, it felt more fair. <laughs> <laughs> you know it's unfair, turn one soul ring, but turn two Gristlebrand. That's, that's 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 some magic. Good, clean none magic. of this none of this degenerate turn one soul ring nonsense. So then you were in top eight. How did you feel at this point, knowing you were going to be in the top eight draft? It was going to be on coverage. You were going to be playing against a lot of your best players of the weekend. Though it must be said, we mentioned when we had Damon last week that most of the big names had fallen out by this point. So it wasn't like you were in a pod with Reed Duke and Dom Harvey and Sam Black and Caleb Durward. Yeah, it's an interesting structure where that sort of like below the top tier is a bunch of single elimination drafts. So it's not all up to records who gets into the top eight. It's who can beat those single eliminations. Yeah. But, you know, you're playing against all the people that beat them, so in some ways that's worse, even if you oh, don't yeah. happen to know their names. How did you feel about going into this draft? I was free-rolling. I was I was ecstatic to make top eight. I knew I was going to get that spiffy play in that. Just being able to say that I top-baited KubeCon was was great. But then at the same time, there's just that, that thought of, all right, I spiked this draft, there's just one more. And again, it's a vintage cube. It's something that I'm decently familiar with. So I, I know kind of how to approach it, and I know that anything can happen in this. So it was being content with where I was, but also kind of that creeping hope that it could be more. Here's where I will confess my behind-the-scenes information. I was on the coverage team this year, and as part of the coverage team, we had a big group chat with all the coverage team members where somebody was posting the deck pool photos from all of the people that we were going to have on coverage so we could, you know, check their card pool and, you know, talk about their deck and all that kind of stuff. So before you had, like, finished deck building, I had the photos of everybody's pool that I was looking over, and I knew that you were playing Allison from our playgroup in round one. And so I had looked very closely at Allison's pool, looked very closely at your pool, and honestly, I'm going I'm to be honest with you, Tim. I looked at your pool, and I was like, I don't know about this. This looks a little questionable to me. Seems like mono white that didn't quite get there, and Allison was playing mostly red. I'm not sure how she... Mono red that didn't quite get there? Yeah, I'm not actually sure how she ended up <laughs> building that deck, but it was mostly red, but also didn't quite get there. And I was like, in my head, red beats white, you know, so often, because in, in that sort of mono white versus mono red matchup, I feel like the one with burn spells is often an advantage, because you have the option of actually, like, altering your strategy, where Mono White is just like, you kind of got to go pedal to the metal no matter what, because you, you don't have as much removal spells running around. So I was cautiously optimistic going into your first draft, but uh, but then you just bodied Allison. But talk to me about how you ended up drafting this deck and how you felt about it after the draft was over. Yeah, so um, I will agree with your assessment of Mono White that didn't quite get there. I opened up with the, the, the only two cards I was considering with my first pack were Flicker Wisp and Gaia's Cradle. So it sounds like there's a pretty clear pick there. Kind of a rough pack, honestly, in the Vintage Cube, I feel like. Yeah, I don't remember the rest of it. I, so I, I was two to the left of the coverage drafter. So I was able to kind of piece together a lot of what cards I saw in the order I saw them, just kind of looking back at, okay, what's being shown on camera? What cards did I end up with? But those early picks, it's kind of hard to remember or recreate exactly what, what was right. there. But those were those were the two that I was considering. And Gaia's Cradle is obviously the more powerful, higher ceiling, more explosive card. But I thought that Flicker Wisp was the more flexible card. You don't need it just in mono white. You could do it in 
white X decks, it always finds a way to do a little bit of something. And I had a preference towards white decks. Those are widely known to have a very high win rate in this vintage cube. So that was where I was kind of leaning towards. That was Um, going through your head in that first pack. You were like, if it's available, you were trying to be mono white or heavily white because of the perception that it is a very favored deck. Yeah. And Guy's Cradle feels a little more... It's not always going to make your deck. Right. Uh, it's, a, it's a lot easier to end up in a Flicker Wisp deck than a Gaia's Cradle deck, I think. Like, there's there's more that Gaia's Cradle can do than just be in mono green, but I'm not smart enough to build those decks. So I'm just trying to simplify things for me, take the Flicker Wisp, kind of see if the rest of these packs line up. And if not, then I'm fine tossing that and moving into a different direction. I got past a Stoneforge Mystic. The other cards of note uh, in that pack were Reanimate, Lion Sash, and Elite Spellbinder. So I felt good taking this Stoneforge Mystic. That's an important one to pick up early because it sets you up to get some powerful equipment later on. Even in this pack, there's a Lion Sash, which had a very decent possibility of wheeling that it can go fetch up. That's a relevant card that can interact with some game plans. Reanimate is a strong card, and it's something that I considered moving in for, but Stoneforge Mystic allowed me to stay on plan and a part of me was also thinking, okay, I got past Reanimate Pack 2 in the last draft, and that worked out, but it's not going to work twice in a row, right? Lightning so. can't strike twice. It's impossible. Right. So I, I ended up taking the Stoneforge Mystic. From there, I picked up an Adanto Vanguard, which was very, very impactful in these games. It's just a very resilient, powerful attacker. A Steel Seraph, a Plateau, Tithe Taker. I picked up a seventh pick, Path to Exile, which I felt like was a pretty good signal that there's probably at most one other person taking white cards. So I felt that I should be able to cobble enough together here. Rounded up pack one with a Mirage Mirror, Godless Shrine. The Lion Sash did wheel, uh, which was thankful. Uh, Still then carry added, Recruiter of the Guard, Time Warp, then Escape to the Wilds and Suspicious Stowaway. So rounding out pack one, I had a Decent amount of uh, I had amount of pretty good solid white cards that I was happy and excited to play, and I had an incidental plateau and godless shrine that were kind of branches off into a possible secondary color, if I felt that this wasn't going to be deep enough or if I saw something worth moving in for. So I was decently happy at the end of pack one. Obviously, I didn't open any power, but I'm still fine with where that pack ended up. Pack two, I started off with a Mox Emerald, so I didn't really look at the rest of those cards because you take the Mox, there, there wasn't really any other thing in contention for me. Pack two, I, I picked up Athari, Sun's Glory. So this is one of those commander or supplemental cards that say five mana, three, three flyer that makes a two, two tapped and attacking when it attacks. Uh, it's red, white, which I already had the red, white fixing land for. So I was... Very eager to snap that up. Pack 3 was an interesting pack because it had, I believe it had Adeline, Lurus of the Dream Den, and Lauren as the, kind of the three main cards that I was looking at. And I really thought that I needed to wheel one of the cards in here. And I felt that I had the best chance of wheeling something if I took the Lurus. Because Lurus could get taken by a Black Drafter. And I think that there was only one other white drafter. So I thought that it would be safe to 
wheel either the Lauren or honestly, I thought I could possibly wheel the Adeline if I passed it. I did not wheel the Adeline. I did wheel the Lauren though, which I was happy enough about. But that was something that I'm still not 100% sure on how that should have gone. Adeline is, would have been a good card in this deck. Did you think at the time that Adeline was likely to be a better card in your deck, but you were so much less likely to wheel Luris that you'd rather just take the Luris because that's almost not going to table? Or did you think at the time Luris was also the better card for your deck than Adeline at that point? I thought Adeline was going to be the best card for my deck. If I got to pick two out of that pack, I would have picked Adeline and Lauren. Oh, interesting. But I, I, if I took Adeline, I thought there was a very decent chance that someone else takes both the Luris and the Lauren. And then I wheel nothing out of that pick. Right. The white drafter gets Lauren, and then somebody else that's not even in white gets Luris, and then you basically only get one of those three cards instead of two of those three cards. Right. So that that was that was my thought process there. Not sure if that's correct, but that's that's where my head was at. And then in some combination over the next three picks, these pecks weren't uh panning out as much as I hoped. I did pick up a Caracas, which was very appreciated. Um, a Marsh Flats, which is something that I was happy to pick up for both my Plateau and possible splashing of Godless Shrine, which I didn't have a reason to play yet. And then I picked up a Palantir of Orthanc, Orthanc whatever that is, from Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. This is a card that I've seen played on stream a lot, and that was not something I was happy to pick up, but I thought it is something that ended up making my main deck and... I thought was kind of interesting and had a potential to be very cool once it was all said and done. Because as it turns out, I had a lot of incidental high mana value cards that could randomly flip over and trigger that. Did you get to play the Palantir off stream? Because I don't think you played it in any of your on stream matches. Did you get to actually cast that and see how it played out? Nope, it never came up. But I was excited about it in deck building. (laughs) (laughs) Like later on in this pack, I picked up an Oliphant for the fixing for the plateau because i really wanted to play this authority so that was able to be a mountain cycler and basically a land but if i mill that over with palantir then i'm doming my opponent for six randomly so that's that sort of interaction came up could have come up a lot with things like steel seraph ley line binding cauldra these these things that i'm casting or cheating into play at a lower cost mm-hmm. but that can pressure my opponent's life total with the Palantir. Rounding out that pack, I picked up a Spectral Procession, which I'm not a huge fan of. I was I had a glut of three drops, so that did not end up making my deck. I picked up Lightning Greaves as another hit for my Stoneforge Mystic, which I ended up playing. And I also picked up the uh, the famous Mightstone and Weakstone, which was not uh, not something I was thrilled about. But that that was that was in pick nine, so the fact that I was struggling that early to pick up relevant cards for my deck was a little bit concerning. Did pack three deliver the goods? Did you get more cards fed in pack three, or did you feel like you really ended the draft kind of scrapping? Pack three started off good with a ley line binding. Pack two was a important decision for me, where I had figure of destiny, but also cauldra complete. So cauldra complete is insane with Stoneforge Mystic. It's one of the reasons you take that card early. And... The other reason you take that card early is so you can hopefully make all of your opponents not interested in this type of equipment. So what I ended up doing was taking the figure of Destiny, hoping that the Cauldre Complete would come back around. Then I picked up a Monastery Swift Spear, a Prismatic Ending. The Prismatic Ending was a pick that made over Umazawa's 
uh, Jute, or Jeet, whatever. That's that was a kind of a tough decision as well, but Umazawa's Jit can be kind of really, really good in some matchups and not that relevant in other matchups. I felt Prismatic Ending was the more consistent piece against all of the different decks I would face. Picked up Guardian Scale Lord, Restoration Angel, some other filler cards until Pack 10, which is when the Caldra Complete wheeled. So I, I was very happy to pick that up. Watching back on the coverage, I noticed that uh, the coverage drafter saw a batter skull in their pick five, and I did not see that batter skull. So that means my opponent, who opened the Stone Forge Mystic, either did a hate draft of it or wanted that for their deck as a kind Maybe of Maybe thought game the Stone Forge end. was going to wheel. If you see like Stone Forge, you know you pass it, then you see batter skull, and you're like, well, I'll take the batter skull now. Maybe the Stone Forge comes back around, is what you're thinking. Well, Stoneforge was in pack one, so that was that was my pick two. Oh, okay. This so was they, a different so pack. They, okay. Yeah, they, they, they knew that that was uh, probably somewhere quick to their left. So I'm not sure if that was the hate draft, but for whatever reason, when they saw the Caldra, there was something else in there that they wanted more, which I was very, very grateful for because that was a key player in, in a lot of those matches in top eight. Yeah, I feel like the Stoneforge Mystic into Caldra is the kind of like spiky ceiling that vintage cube decks often need to perform really well you need like those draws where you're just like now it's turn three and you're getting cauldred and what are you going to do about it because that's just how these cube tends to play yeah this was definitely the most explosive uh that this deck could be was either like a turn one mox play that lets you play it ahead or a stoneforge mystic draw where you're getting up this incredibly hard to deal with Incredibly hard to block, 5-5 five, five Haster that pressures your life builder very quickly. So at the end of the draft, this was kind of the first time all weekend where instead of lining up cuts, I was lining up adds. So I was lining up, what am I going to play so I'm not running 19 or 20 lands? So that was how I ended up playing this Voice of Resurgence, which I got last pick in pack three. I had a Indotha Triome the Mox Emerald, and one White Fetchland as my kind of green sources for that card. But I had enough else to do with my mana that I wasn't that concerned with it rotting in my hand when I did draw it. I have like equipment that I can be equipping, Lion Sash that I can be activating, Figure of Destiny to be leveling up. So I can be drawing cards with things like Recruiter of the Guard or paying the Mountain Cycling on Oliphant. So there's other things that I could be doing, I wasn't worried about that card being stranded that often. Yeah. Um, and thankfully, it, it wasn't. And then Mightstone and Weakstone was... Yeah. Uh, this came up on coverage quite a few times, where J-Rose is trying to figure out what, what I'm doing with that card. <laughs> what and, were you uh, doing to, with it? I mean, it's a five-mana removal spell. It, it, it did that. Yeah. It I was mean, relevant. It, it, it mattered. Yeah, I mean, I, obviously, you know, I was definitely not trying to drag you by suggesting I looked at your pool and was like, I think Allison's got a chance. But, yeah, I mean, you're, you're essentially playing what came down to, like, a mono-white aggro deck, but you have two one-drops, one of which is Grim Lavamancer, which is going to be really hard to play on one with your mana base, so really your only actual consistent one-drop is Figure of Destiny. And then you are playing some things in here like Mightstone and Weakstone and 
ley line binding in a near mono white deck. You do have the Triumph and the Fest, so I think you know it, it totally get it totally got there. Same with the prismatic ending, like both those removal spells. I feel like you rarely see in decks that are heavily white. They're mostly in decks that are splashing white, or they're like a three or four color deck. So it was a really interesting brew that ended up carrying the day. I mean, obviously the the proof is in the results. What do you think gave you an edge in your matches? And we should say to the listeners, too, you can watch your round two and the finals on coverage. The VODs are still on NRG's Twitch channel, and at some point they're going to be on YouTube, but I don't think they are as of yet. So we'll post They're on the NRG series. They're on NRG's yep, YouTube yep. channel. Okay. Okay, cool. We'll post one to YouTube, then. It's easier to get a link than the one to uh, the Twitch channel. So those are on coverage. You can watch those. You beating our, our dear friend Allison, not on coverage, which uh, is good for our psyche. We, we were the backup match game one, uh, round one, so you can see the... Oh, there's a little coverage back, of it. Yeah. The back half of the second game, yeah. Okay. I I, actually, I just saw them start on a different match, and then I was like, all right, well, this is not the one that I care about, so I skipped to the next one to watch you. But all right. So you can watch a little bit of that, too. When we were shuffling up, we were talking about our decks, me and Allison, and I said that... I wasn't sure about my deck. I've drafted worse. I've drafted better. And Allison commented that she had drafted better. So not saying that she had drafted a worse deck before. So didn't seem like she was that happy with her she deck. Wasn't. She, she wasn't. She had texted the group <laughs> chat. She, she wanted us to... We were originally going to draft with Allison on a side event draft during the top eight. And then she made top eight. Obviously couldn't draft with us. And she was quick to text us after the draft was over. Like, save that draft seat for me because I'll be done very quickly. <laughs> Which, you know, it, I think... Allison felt you know, like a little bit intimidated and was not totally happy with her draft and maybe oversold how bad she thought her deck was. But but you got her 2-0, so... Maybe she was right. Easy dub there. Yeah, um, and I don't remember that being super eventful. Uh, the draws that I had lined up pretty well. I was able to play a Caracas and bounce some legendary creature, which getting that sort of value was nice. Uh, I remember just from watching on coverage in game two, I got to Stoneforge Mystic for Cauldra. And I had a Leyline binding up for any shenanigans. Uh, she went to equip in Umazawa's Jite uh, that got to her and didn't uh, wheel to me. But I was able to flash that in and take out the Umazawa's Jite while I was had a face-up Kaldra coming down the next turn. And Allison said, oh, yeah, that's enough to uh, pack it in and call that a game. Yeah, pretty devastating sequence there. Game two, or round two, rather, I was playing against Andrew Jabs, and they had a... Double Mox and I think Ancestral Recall deck. Just a lot of power. It was sort of a greedy mana base with Omnath as a kind of card that I was not expecting to see in that list. Uh, these were open deck lists, by the way, since some of the games were being on stream and some weren't. We all had to write out our main deck and our sideboard cards, and we had access to that uh, before each of the games and during sideboarding. So... I, I knew all of this information going into each of these games. Game one, I kept a two-lander on the draw and did not draw more lands and just kind of played it out for the for the viewers. It was not close to being close. He landed a uh, Thief of Sanity, and that was getting in uncontested and drawing cards from my deck and being played against me. He really made that uh, the Mice Stone and the Weak Stone, stone look very good. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> That was, yeah, perplexing J-Bro to no end. <laughs> Another it? perplexing play that came up was when I tried to... No, not when I tried to. When I successfully cast Prismatic Ending for X equals zero, targeting Thief of Sanity. I, I was going to ask you about this. It was X, it was X <laughs> equals zero, but colors equals yeah. one, because you still to pay the white. Right, what, yes. 
what were you doing there? <laughs> the the, the cover team speculated you were having a bit of fun. The cover team yes. speculated that you did it very intentionally because you could see in your body language that you like gestured at the Thief of Sanity. And for those that don't know, you can cast Prismatic Engine targeting whatever you want. Yeah, a lot of things have a targeting restriction that you just are not allowed to do that it's, if it doesn't have the matching mana value. But it just says Exile Target Nightland Permanent if its mana value is less than or equal to the number of colors. So you can target whatever you want. Yeah, and so you targeted it spending only white, and the coverage team was like, uh... <laughs> but your body language was so assertive that they were like, that was clearly intentional. Happening. They were speculating. They were like, maybe he's got balance in his deck, and he wants to discard a card from his hand. So if he draws balance, then... He's making his opponent discard more. Then they were like, actually, balance isn't even good in this board state anyway. It was really fun to watch you uh, mess with the psyche of the coverage booth. So I got to say, as a fellow member of the coverage team, (laughs) it's very hard. It's very tricky. So uh, the pranks will work on us for sure. All right, we're seeing a prismatic prismatic ending Uh, for one on what? I don't understand. Wait. Exile target. So... Uh, a legal play. It is, yeah. I think that was I'm, maybe no, just a. Th- no, I no. This was willful from Tim. Okay. I, I, I want to try to find out. I want to try to find out why Tim did this. He specifically tapped a white, and and targeted that, and and acknowledged because Jabs looks like he was like it's not going to kill it, and he nodded. Would there be a reason that Tim, maybe he has a balance, would try to get rid of cards in his hand? Um. I'm gonna see. Uh, we're we're that, gonna take a peek at ten. A Tim's balance deck would be pretty good. That's that's gonna be that's gonna be my deck. Uh, my my guess. Balance uh, would be good, but I mean, even with even if there is a balance here, I uh, 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 Jabs can still get Jabble Dabble can still get through with the creep and tar pit. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. I I don't know. I don't. I don't think. I think Tim is a heads up enough player to know that's not gonna do it. Yeah, I appreciated their effort to try to find a spiky reason for that play. But no, um, at that point, I was think I was at seven life. If I stacked my deck, and if I stacked Andrew's deck, and if I also <laughs> picked up the Thief of Sanity and just put it in the graveyard and let that go, <laughs> then I was still going to lose that game. So I was just interested in taking game actions whether or not they did anything useful. You sent a very assertive message to Andrew, who was also very confused. He was Because he was like, it's not going to die. And you were like, I know. <laughs> Target as I the said, thief we, of sanity. As I said, it was open deckless, so it wasn't like a risk of giving anybody any more information. Right. So I, I just thought it'd be a fun, cheeky way of finishing out the game. Yeah, that, 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 was, that was the only reason. And then it really looked like you were going to lose game three against Andrew Jabs, too, because they started on... Wasteland strip mine on with exploration, with exploration and, play and too. crucible of worlds. No, they, was, no, they never drew the crucible. They never drew it. Okay, no, okay. Uh, J Bro yeah. was talking about it nonstop because J Bro loves a, a strip mine crucible lock. But uh, Andrew never drew the crucible, which was why eventually uh, Tim was able to come back into the game. But it was a really devastating opening where Andrew had a mox jet hit like three or four land drops while wastelanding and strip mining your first two land plays. You were then stuck on a land or two for like four or five turns, but Andrew just kept passing the turn, had nothing to do. I mean, at the end of the game, it was revealed that his hand was like mono removal spells and four-color Omnath, or was it even five-color Omnath with the Phyrexian Black? Four-color. Four-color. So Omnath Locus of Creation, which he never drew one of the colors of mana for. I'm not sure which one it was. It was either white or blue, I think he never drew. And so the game ended with this Omnath in hand that just never, never got to come down. He was close to casting it. If he drew, I think, a red or a blue source, he would have been able to land it. 
Oh, interesting. So he had like both sources, but they were on the same land. So he needed another he had, source he had a, to, to round it out. He had the Mardu Triome. He had a green source and I think like a steam vents. So yeah, I think either like a blue or the red source would have gotten there. So I, I only had to discard one card to hand size, which was helpful. But the <laughs> other thing was that uh, I had the Adanto Vanguard in my hand and we had open deck list. So I, I think I knew that that was going to resolve. And I think I knew that that was going to be very difficult for him to interact with once that did resolve. Yeah, no exile removal or toughness based removal, I don't think. At least that we saw out of the deck on coverage. He had also basically mulliganed by the exploration being in play and not playing multiple lands anymore. So he was also down a card. So that, that kind of helped me not uh, not lose my mind or anything. If there was like a planeswalker ticking up or if I was getting attacked or if there's any other sort of board progression happening as I was missing land drops, that would have been a little tougher to deal with. But as the as it happened out, I, I was fine with how it was it wasn't like thrilled but i i i knew that you stayed not calm really anything, yeah you there's not anything confident. to do at that point yeah you didn't seem shaken at all i mean a lot of people i'd be like this too like a lot of people get on coverage and are just nervous period this was also the top eight draft but you seemed very calm cool and collected you're like well okay guess i'll keep drawing until i find a land and i'll discard my stone and weak stone to hand size yeah i think you even said in the the interview after the after the event you just like yeah this was the situation we were gonna play it out and see what happened and uh i am confident i would not be able to hold up the same under <laughs> we a, are both jealous of your wasteland. emotional stability and positive attitude <laughs> yeah so one, once i was able to land the uh adanto vanguard and start casting more spells that that game became a lot more fun <laughs> <And> <laughs> just draw go you gotta find the fun uh-huh. and the fun is eventually drawing out of your strip mine lock so you can start beating your opponent's face in while they frustratingly have multiple pieces of burn removal in hand against your adanto vanguard yeah, but like like that all just goes to that's an additional form that these games can take in their high variance nature. Like if my if yeah jabs, for sure if they wait on cracking their horizon land, their blue red horizon land, then they would have been able to right. land that. They cracked on that math. on turn two, I think, which the coverage team was also surprised by. Like turn one was exploration strip mine or exploration wasteland. I think was actually the first sequence. Then turn two was play the fiery islet. And maybe another land. I think it was just Mox Jet, actually, not even another land. But then on your end step, cycled away that fire out immediately. And the coverage team was like, oh, uh, okay. I, I guess we're just immediately trying to draw more, draw out of the, whatever is in your hand. And we knew it wasn't more lands because they didn't play two lands that turn. So um, it was you definitely. Could have drawn anything, even. Could have drawn more lands. It's true. Yeah. A lot of times the games in cubes like this do come down to those moments where because the cards are so explosive, it's like, yeah. yes, if Omnath had come down, that surely would have changed things dramatically. But just didn't happen because but yeah i mean that that cycling that land also could have meant drawing into thief of sanity or something else that could have come down oh for sure yeah or or a crucible or something that yeah Yeah, completely locks me out of the game yeah i'm not saying that was like a wrong decision or anything but like it's a defensible decision to wait on that and if they had then i'd probably lose that game or if they just happen to draw a red source or a blue source to land the omnath or if they happen to draw a crucible like there are so many draws i had to dodge and they, they lined up very well for me to come back into that game. So it definitely took a little bit of luck on my side as well. And then the actual finals came down to two games. You won it 2-0. And really, in both games, from watching the coverage, kind of two interactions mattered. The first game, you leyline binding a huge threat that your opponent had channeled in, spending 
10 or 12 life. Was it the Blightsoe Colossus they, they sent in on, in, in game yep. one? Yep. Uh, so you were playing an aggro deck. You got a slightly aggressive start. They spent half their life total or more channeling in Blightsteel Colossus. You had the Leyline Binding. They scooped it up. And then game two really just came down to the uh, the draw with Stoneforge Mystic into Cauldra, and your opponent couldn't answer it. And that's how you won KubeCon. Yeah. Uh, it also helped that I had on the second game a turn one prismatic ending for their Mana Dork, so that their, their turn two play was just Forest Pass, which I was feeling yeah. very good when their turn was Forest Pass, and mine was land Stoneforge Mystic Find Cultra. Because, um, again, I looked at their list. I knew that there wasn't going to be interaction for that unless it was channeling in a Nulamog. And I was taking the uh, requisite steps to pressure their life total enough where that wouldn't be an option. Yeah, I mean, you played so well. I mean, it's such a great accomplishment to play this well for the entire weekend. Obviously, winning the championship was huge. How do you feel? Do you feel proud of yourself? Do You feel you mentioned on coverage kind of like, you know, somewhat cheekily like, oh, it's just, it just shows, I guess, the cube's cool that someone like me can win and Reed Duke and Caleb Durward lost. How do you feel overall now that the event's a couple weeks behind you? I still stand by that. Um, the, the format <laughs> is a little bit weird where it's a, a different than other kind of pro tours where you have Swiss pairings, so each round you're playing the same record. So you're, each round you're playing something more and more talented, skilled players. And this one is all resetting after every three rounds. So it does open up the variance quite a bit. I also kind of do lean into a little bit of the credit that I've done over the past year, which has been cubing just a lot more. So after the last oh, year's yeah. CubeCon, I found it. a local playgroup. So now I'm cubing once a week on the regular. And before that, it was just cubing to me was designing cubes and playing one-on-one with my brother every month or so. So that explosion in how often I've been playing, becoming more familiar with a bunch of cards in a bunch of different contexts, I think is a big reason why I did a lot better this year than I did last year. I also started playing online more with the NTG Cube Talk Discord. We had a bunch of drafts leading up to KubeCon. I had always thought it would be very difficult to kind of learn Cockatrice, the program they use, but that was not the case. It was very easy to pick up, and I'm glad I got to have even more cubing experience with a lot of these cubes that were in the main event and just see a lot of the cards in different contexts. Yeah, I mean, to that point, I feel like it's also a great accomplishment that you also finished designing a cube that I think you had just started the previous year uh, and had it in the main event. And that seemed like a, a great environment that people had a blast with, too. So you kind of won on both sides as the player and as a designer. It was going to be hard to have a better weekend than I did. <laughs> um, yeah, hearing hearing all the feedback, hearing Dom Harvey speak positively about it on coverage and on your podcast. I, I can't wait to see all of the pictures that we get of all the pools and all the deck lists from Hedron Archive. I'm dying for it. I want it so bad. I, I, it's everything in my power to not bug Gwen every other day about like, <laughs> hey Gwen, when are we going to get that data? I want it so bad. But yeah, Cube Cubecon is great. I'm thrilled with that weekend. I'm going to be riding this high for quite a while and I can't wait to channel this energy into playing more cube, designing more cubes, thinking about cubes some more. Yeah, listening to you go through all these drafts, I feel like there's a couple things I noticed that like carried you through the weekend. The Number first one... Well, Seed Rhino, obviously. Seed Rhino is a pretty big deal. <laughs> no, I think, I mean, the first thing that has got to be noted is that, like, I think your attitude is, like, so fantastic, and it's really hard to go to an event and play this much magic, and if you're going to, like, beat yourself up over a loss or a bad beat or whatever, it just kind of spirals, and I think your, like, attitude and mentality is 
part of why you had so much success. You're like going into the top eight with no expectations, just thrilled to be there, just happy to play cubes. And uh, I really admire that and think that's a really great trait and contributed to your ability to kind of in that situation where you got like strip mine locked, just be like, well, okay, let's see what happens, I guess, as opposed to being like, I'm in the finals of my of the of CubeCon and I'm getting strip mine locked. This is bullshit. Those cards suck. You know, you were just like very positive about it. I also think that the way you talk about all these drafts, there were so many key moments where you strategically wield a card that you were like looking for, looking for on the wheel. You mentioned that like four, four or five times over the course of all these drafts, the most recent one being obviously getting that Cauldra on the wheel. And I think that's a skill of yours as a player, just from listening to you talk, is that you're clearly paying attention to what else is in the pack over just what you're taking. You know, the, the Luris pick, for example, over Adeline, even though of those three cards that you were talking about, you felt like Luris was the least impactful for your deck. You thought it was the best way to get two of them for your deck. And you'd rather have the two less impactful ones than one more impactful one. Like those kinds of draft decisions, I feel like are also something that uh, I feel like I've learned from listening from you and just trying to pay more attention to those wheels. I think sometimes at least I will like knock at a wheel and just kind of be like, Oh, whatever it's random chance and not there's some other player that's taking my card that is going to, impact my future draft decisions negatively so that's what i feel like i learned from from listening to you and you know you can talk about the variance of the format all you want and you know talk about the event not being set up to like do swiss pairings the entire time but it is so hard to come up to an event like this and play three drafts a day and make minimal mistakes and even put yourself in the position where you have the chance to be a little bit lucky right like there's always variance in magic but my whole thing that i feel like I learn when I go to an event like KubeCon, right? Like everyone talks about how, how much variance there is. And then, you know, Reed Duke has, never, has not lost a match in the first yeah, two you days. you still see the same names yeah, at right. the top of the list. And both years, Sam Black, Caleb Durwood, these people are always all the way to the top. Theo, Dom, don't forget Theo. Theo, Dom Harvey, they're all, all always up there because it takes a certain like mentality to show up and just make minimal mistakes and play consistently all weekend to even put yourself in that position. So I think it's a huge accomplishment and uh, you should be super duper proud. And honestly... It couldn't happen to a nicer guy. You're like the nicest dude alive. And we're so grateful for everything you've done for the show. And it was so cool to watch you win KubeCon. I was so happy when you won. Thanks. Yeah, it, it was great for me too. I, I enjoyed the the entire weekend. It, it didn't really sink in for a while, but I was. it was an unforgettable weekend for sure. I guess we'll have to forgive you for stomping all our friends along the way, but you know, <laughs> I did it's not your fault. It's not your fault they dared to challenge you. It's not your fault they they tried to to stop your run. We forgive you. We can't speak for them, but we forgive you. <laughs> it's true. Fair it's enough. true. Is there anything you want to promote, Tim? <laughs> That's what we always ask our guests at the end of the show. Is there anything you want to point people towards? I mean, I guess you have a great Cuban group in St. Louis. So if someone's listening in St. Louis and is not part of your Cuban group, should they reach out to you on Discord, or is there a playgroup hub where you can point them to? No, reaching out to me on Discord is great, and I, I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to want to plug my playgroup. Um, if you're in the St. Louis area and you are want to be cubing more, or if you already do cube frequently, uh, you can hit me up on Discord at Donald underscore K underscore Magic. We can link that in the show notes. And I'm part of two uh, groups, actually. So we meet on Tuesdays, and another group meets on Thursdays. So we are very relaxed, very open and not very spiky at all very casual group so we're always looking for more players if you if you want to uh if you're visiting or if you're in the area yeah so check that out uh and you know if you want to train with the kubecon champion and up your game so you have a chance next year and you're anywhere in the st louis area you should check that out for sure donald i also feel like you have helped me so much over the years with the uh with the show notes for those that don't know but for more recent listeners we 
started the podcast and we always had very basic show notes like today on the podcast andy and anthony talk about magic cards great and then at some point like 30 or 40 episodes in we added timestamps and so i would actually like timestamp the different segments and then every episode going forward had those and then like another 30 episodes later we added the cards mentioned and at some point we were like it'd be so nice to have all those back episodes have the timestamps and cards mentioned. And you and a couple other of listeners really stepped up. And yeah, credit to Talo as well. I yeah, think the two of you pretty much just, just took that task 85% on. of that was basically you and Talo just going back through the archives and adding all that information. And I feel like, subconsciously or not, in this episode, you mentioned so many cards to make my job so hard editing this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> just to get me back for all that help you gave. And I will gladly note all of the 100,000 cards you mentioned in this podcast. You, you have a great memory, too, for all the cards your opponents played, because you mentioned like 10 out of every deck so check the cards mentioned page and see if i was thorough enough and, uh, and got all the cards you mentioned when uh, when this episode goes live i didn't even think about all the work i was creating for you i'm sorry <laughs> no 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 don't be sorry i'm very glad to do it but only for you we should also probably mention that by the time this episode comes out i assume the lost caverns of ixalan survey will be up i think the full spoiler is like tomorrow okay great It'll be up. Go check the show notes and our website to see if the Lost Cavern of Ixalan survey is up. The uh, Doctor Who one is maybe still up. I, I don't know. What we're, there's too many. Just whatever's, whatever's up is just up. Go, just, just go, go do the out. things. Go see what's up and do the stuff. And uh, we appreciate your responses there. I think Lost Caverns of Ixalan is shaping to, up to be a really cool set for uh, for a lot there's of There's some interesting mechanics in there. Yeah, cool mechanics. We'll talk about those at some point, too. we got to do that, I guess, eventually. Yeah. If you want even a little bit more CubeCon recap, uh, if it's not up already, it'll be up shortly. Parker has written an excellent little... Uh, Tournament report. An excellent little tournament report uh, summarizing our experience. I would call it a big tournament report. A, a, a huge don't, tournament Don't belittle report. his tournament report. <laughs> don't demean it. It's a great it. report. Yeah, Parker wrote a great tournament report too, so check that out. Check out all the things. And then, most importantly, check out Donald K. Magic's, a.k.a. Tim's playgroup in St. Louis if you uh, want to play some cube with the champ. Anything else, Tim? No, it was great. Uh, I was glad to come on and talk about this. Uh, I hope that other people <laughs> enjoyed listening to it. I hope other people got something from it like your tidbit about wheeling cards intentionally or at least hoping to wheel cards intentionally so yeah thanks this has been great yeah it was so good to have you on i appreciate you giving us so much of your time and that's it for this episode of lucky paper radio so all of our music is produced by dj james nasty all the magic cards are produced by wizards of the coast this show is produced by anthony and i agreeing before cubecon we're gonna talk to the cubecon champion this year if we can get him on and then one of our close personal friends tim winning cubecon and coming on the show tim, Thank you, Daisy. tim such a pleasure to have you this has been great 